Welcome to Edge Group Podcast, episode number nine. Eight. Eight? Are you nine. sure it was eight? Was it, wasn't it eight last time? Uh, there's so many we lost count. Ah, uh, okay. I think it's, like, it's yeah. That's getting that's getting pretty hot. We're almost ready to run out of fingers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you and know, that's what we lose track of the math. You know, depending depending <laughs> what series you ride, you you probably ran out of fingers already. I was about to say most of us road racers only have nine to eight maximum, <laughs> and and nine to eight toes as well. Yeah, exactly. So today we have the legendary legendary jeremy toy which is not only a short circuit racer but he's he's one of those i don't want to say you know a little little bit you know crazy guys that do um how, how should we how should we call it uh, island man uh macau those those are uh street races right or yeah yeah closed closed street circuits closed street, street circuits um so uh yeah, I mean, and, and you, stop discriminating against short people, please. Yeah, nothing against short people, Nabil. I feel offended. Okay, all right. Just let me know when you need to change a light bulb. <laughs> uh, so usually, when you when you go on a racetrack, uh, you got you know corner workers, air air fences, uh, runoffs. Uh, when you when you go on the Isle of Man, <laughs> you got someone's backyard, uh, dogs. Uh, windows and all kinds of things that that cobblestone walls cobblestone walls and all all, all sorts of things that are not going to be nice to you when you slide at 200 miles an hour uh, into them uh so your your bow is this you um you're a professional tester for road racing world uh and i usually read read those little tiny boxes um in road racing world every time they have a, a a road test and then they go like, oh, our really fast guy, Jeremy Toy, said the bike, you know, is doing this and that. And that way I know it's real. It's actually <laughs> behaving the way you say it's behaving. Uh, and then you start racing uh, the late 1990s. You have uh, top 10 finishes in, in AMA Pro Superbike 2004, 2005. Uh, yeah, that was, yeah. yeah, top five finishes, uh, AMA Pro Racing. Uh, fastest newcomer at the Isle of Man TT in 2006. So you basically went over there, and you just went like, "Let me let me show you how it's done." I never been here. I never rode here before. I don't live here like most of the racers. And and here you go. This is how this is how you do it, guys. Um, that that's how it happened. <laughs> yeah, close enough. They uh, being American, it's you're like. I mean, obviously you're a foreigner from there, but you're it's even being more foreign because you're Irish and you're British. They they're all about it. Americans, we need some runoff and air fence. So it's even rare for a couple of us, you know, the Mark Millers and 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 the other guys, Rennie, you know, that went over last year. It's rare for us guys to go over. And uh you also finished uh third at Macau. Uh, earning a podium in 2010, and you were the first American to podium in the event in 10 years. So, yeah. so, so it was the same with Mikhail. You you went in there and 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 you went like, yeah, let me let me show you guys how it's done. Yeah, that one I actually had a couple rounds. Like I had been going to that one for a couple races, and strictly because it's probably one of my favorites. It's a 
it's a mass start. Not only is it a street race, but it's a mass start. Isle of Man, you're out there for, depending what race you're in, you could be out there for two hours and not see a single bike except for in the pits. You're by yourself. Where Macau, you start off with 30 other knuckleheads all charging into turn one. And uh, it's it's intense. Like, it's it's definitely a fun, fun race. I, I remember watching Macau um, before, before I even started racing and uh the first the first thing i saw is someone i don't want to you know it's not nice to talk about it but someone just went into a wall and and you know that was it for him uh and that was my first introduction to the Macau grand prix and and i said okay who who's crazy enough to do this but yeah <laughs> obviously yeah well some yeah, people you you try to set some uh some guidelines for yourself and on these particular races my guideline was real simple don't crash, <laughs> you know, uh, easier said than done, but yeah. And it, what's funny is when you say that about Macau, it actually has a very, very good track record for, uh, for not having, uh, for, for anything really bad going on where obviously Isle of Man is, is quite different to where I had raced Macau probably, I think like six times and then got invited to Isle of Man. And the organizers from Macau, which actually the main organizer lives at Isle of Man, tried to get me not to go to the TT because it's that dangerous. So it was like, eh, you know, a lot of second guessing there, but it's one of those bucket list things you got to try. Look, you're talking about a race where they bring body bags just in case. And, and yeah, it, oh, it's standard. I mean, yeah. I could tell you plenty of stories. I mean, I've my first time at my first time at TT. During practice week, we went out for the first practice and I came back and my teammate that I was in the tent with, this is my first interaction of this whole place. My teammate that was in the tent never came back. And I was just like, what in the hell? You know, and me and I had taken a, two of my mechanics over. I rode for a Manx base team and I took two of my mechanics over at a couple of U.S. media guys. And then the rest of them were Irish and British uh, support for the team and me and the other Americans are looking at each other like, what in the fuck did we get ourselves into? Like, this is crazy. And everybody else there, it's just, it's a, it's a different mindset. So yeah, we will definitely view it different over here, but it's, it's, it's just that intense. Yeah. We, we keep telling ourselves, Hey, go to the racetrack cause it's safe over there. And racing is not as safe as doing a track day, obviously, but it's, you know, you don't expect, to die, you know what I mean, and and this is a race where you you come in expecting to die. You go like, okay, I don't I don't really, you know, I got to win this thing. I don't I don't really care what happens. And there's a very chance, there's a very real chance, and and it's measurable, right? Out of yeah, I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't use the word expect. Not expect. You one hundred you one hundred percent accept it. Yeah. You accept the possibilities. Like there's no question, and I've. You know, there's a couple of the mistakes I've had at those races over the years to where I just look back and shake my head and wow, like, wow, you just dodged the biggest bullet. But yeah, you you go in there accepting it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So why do you think uh, Macau is safer than or has a safer record than uh, Alamanna? Do, do people are, are so scared of the walls there that they actually slow down? Or You know what? That's that is that, that's an amazing question that I can't answer. And I. I do think some of it is due to the mass start because you end up racing people and 
you know, in any race, sometimes that leads you in, but sometimes when you get served by somebody who's faster, you actually back down. And so you'll see the algorithm of Macau where the first three laps, it's like people are going every which way and it's a, it's a proper race. And then all of a sudden about halfway, most of the people start to like, all right, tap out. I've had enough. And they start to relax. Um, or, or when I say relax, maybe slow the pace where Isle of Man, another problem with Isle of Man that I think is the, that separates the two is Macau is only, uh, what's it? Three, it's a little over three mile lap. TT's 36. So you, there's a long, 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 long amount to get lost and forget your way. And I mean, you know, at TT, for sure, I've never, ever, I've never been, well, in Pikes Peak, I have, but like, say, Pikes Peak and TT, those places, I've never been that focused in my life, like, and I'm a, I am ADD to the 10th power, I stare at the planes when I'm racing, I can tell you what the corner workers are wearing, like, I've got a major attention problem, but with TT, that was like the one time where I was like, laser focused, and I could still, to this day, remember one lap to where I was like, going out my first lap you're always absolutely scared out of your mind thinking to yourself what the what did i get out into this is stupid like what are you thinking second lap you're like i think i got this like i can control it and then the third lap you're like shit i gotta wait a day to ride again like it's you want it so bad but like at that third lap you get almost comfortable and i can still to this day remember going over bluff bridge and kind of forgetting where i was or how intense the jump was and i jumped all the way across the street almost into a pub and i was like that's it like you <laughs> you lose focus one more time we're not coming back so that i think that could be the difference to where maybe macau since it's so much shorter you you're it's easier to focus or i don't know everybody's different obviously right well also that's a good point if, if you're treating every lap as a qualifier because you're out there on your own yeah, uh, trying to keep your time versus being held up by a group. You know that that that's a very good comment. That's a very good point. Yeah. So both, yeah, both, all those uh, variables. Yeah, both though necessitate uh, massive cojones, I would say, just to even snap, <laughs> <laughs> let alone go through with the uh, the actual event. Yeah. No, they're they're uh, they're special places too. I mean, we all gravitate towards motorcyclists because we love them in a in every which way you know everybody's a little different but you know the and then the next elevation from that is the competition and then the next elevation from that is these specialty races for me that just you know at club racing or at an ama level you know i would see myself just like zoning out or not paying attention or just getting sidetracked on something and these races, I think that's what made me gravitate to them because it makes you hyper focus or else. Like it's there's no you have no option. Like you either focus or the worst could happen. Yeah. Speaking speaking of those club racing, uh 2010, uh you ran Wira, WSMC, CSC, and had 13 wins on a BMW. Uh and I was I was fortunate enough to be with you on the same race racetrack at the same race, but I was on the second wave, uh, obviously, because I was a novice back then. I still am. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, 
and I sent you I sent you that picture of you uh, almost slapping me. You didn't, but I, I clearly slowed you down. Uh, so I apologize. Uh, but you were you were unbeatable. I mean, uh, every every race that you were in, I remember everybody was just going like, "Yeah, it's, you know, he's he's going to win that." Uh, and and you were up a bit against uh, you know pretty pretty heavy names like Carl Lowry and and all those guys. They're pretty fast guys, and they couldn't stand a chance. You just obliterated them. You just went through the field. Nobody ever saw you. Uh, you know. Once the start started, and you just you went like one nineteen, one nineteen, one nineteen, one nineteen, and and that was you know that that was it. Um, so yeah, I mean th- that two thousand ten was was a pretty good year, huh? Yeah, no, it was a lot of fun. That that ten became with the BMW, and it was a brand new bike, brand new platform. Everybody was, you know, going cuckoo over it, and. Uh, we got a little bit of connection with a local dealer, which connected us with the factory a little bit. And there was a little bit of communication there. And uh, yeah, it was one of those that just the, kind of the piece of the puzzle kind of came together. And, and, and again, with those, with those type of races, I was always kind of known for kind of the head hunting, you know, I would go from track to track, whatever, who was paying the most money. And you know, it, it sounds selfish, but I, it was, it worked, you know, it paid, it paid the bills. And I mean, in those years, like, I mean, to be honest, from like 2005 to 2010, contingency money was proper. Like, you know, Willow Springs, you can say what you want about that crazy little place in the desert, <laughs> but <laughs> there was times when, you know, I walked away to there with proper money, you know, which I now being in the industry and especially at you know a pretty high level dealing with riders i uh i cringe on what they're getting paid i cringe and what they have to pay for themselves um the risk that they're taking you know uh for i wouldn't say for nothing because we're all doing it for you know for something if it's not individual but uh yeah those those early years you know whew, you know those toyota 200s stuff like that i mean there's a bunch of them. I can go on and on, but like you know, if you pay attention, you kind of played your cards right. You walk away these club races, fifty grand, proper money. It was yeah. you know, it was it was worth it was worth taking the risk. Yeah, it was it was a quarter million dollar purse in those those Toyota two hundreds, right? Yeah, yeah, fifty thousand. Well, fifty fifty thousand, I think, was first place, but it, it the the total yeah, purse, for the whole thing, yeah, yeah the whole thing. Exactly. So you would you would still yeah. if you which in today's dollar is five hundred thousand. Yeah, it's you know what racing is now what it used to be club racing you know it, it doesn't you know almost doesn't exist anymore i mean except chakwala but yeah uh, it's, it's i a was looking world. at a contingency sheet from uh for the payouts from one of the motorcycle parts brands and i won't say who to save the innocent but it was like 50 bucks you know and that's that's kind of in the uh super bike or, or super stock 1000 and and the top price was maybe a few hundred bucks and then it was like 50 yeah it's it's all about that doesn't doesn't cover the tire yeah it's all about viewing eyeballs right uh it's how many views your videos are going to get on youtube how many uh people are going to pay the gate fee to come in and watch the race um yeah and and the attendance is it's just not there anymore people are not interested in it so it it's you know it's a circus without a crowd right now yeah and these things, I mean, <clears throat> you look at it, especially with my background, you know, I come from 
I come from off-road. I come from the motocross, supercross side of things is my, is my roots. And that thing's, that, that show is extremely packageable. It's like real easy where your road race events, you know, they're usually fairly remote. The track is spread across, you know, good amount of property. And it's a, it's a hard little show to sell. Um, But on the flip side, yeah, the, the advertisement nowadays, yeah, it's just, it's not there to where, God, I like again. I just I cringe and what these guys are are getting and and not getting. It's 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 amazing. And it's not right now. It's not a good viewing experience too. I mean, you go to Coda and and you see you know one turn, maybe two turns if you're lucky. Uh, but then but then you go to one of those old racetracks like Willow and you sit there on the balcony and you can see pretty much the entire track. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it, it that's an amazing point. I don't. Kind of don't know why. Well, I know a little bit why, and a lot of it's political, but why it never took off? Because for as far as the viewing part of it, uh, yeah, there's no comparison. Yeah. Uh, you also won the Pikes Peak International Hill Climb while competing as a rookie in 2014 on the Kawasaki ZX-10R, setting a record time and winning Rookie of the Year. So. It's the same. It's the same everywhere you go, right? You you come in there first time around and you show everybody, you know, where the turns are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I wish it was that easy, but uh, yeah, I've had a, there's been a couple that worked out in my favor, but uh, yeah, the pikes the pikes was one that was funny just because there was so much I wouldn't say argument, but like bantering back and forth between all these people that had done it for a bunch of years, and it's another one of those. It's a closed road, but the surface is really intense. Like it's, there's sections of it. It's like a motocross track and it's every bit as dangerous as the other two. The speeds aren't quite as high, but the accuracy is higher. And uh, so all these older guys and maybe people in the know kept saying, oh, well, to win that race, you got to have a bike that's has more traveler. It's has, it's upright with handlebars and things like that. And I was kind of like, ah. I don't know about that. Like kind of like the ZX 10 and I kind of got a, a good little feeling with it. And, and then the more I said that more people fought back and I was like, all right, well, I guess we're going to go race this thing and see what's what, you know, and, why, yeah, right. It's, it almost... it, it's the Ducati marketing machine, right? That once they brought those multistratas, everybody believed that that's the best bike. Yeah, exactly. And, and exactly. no, it was, it was just the bike with the best rider on it. That's the one. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Yeah, in in you know I I hate to say it and I don't want to take anything away from the other manufacturers or even the one I was running for, but in races like that, yeah, there could be a guy up there with a you know I don't even know a, a pook scooter and probably smash half the leader bikes. <laughs> it's yeah, it, it's all about the rider. Uh, and then yeah. you you won the Moto America Super Sport Championship as crew chief for Sean Dillon, Dillon Kelly in uh, 2021. So yeah. you, you you can obviously tune bikes as well, or, or at least get info from riders, especially young riders, and translate it to real results. So how's, how's that experience transitioning from a rider to crew chief? That's been really fun too. Like I was, I was surprised how, how, how much it sucked me in, how much I really just engulfed wanting to get into it um, and had, I was lucky to work with a couple young riders. Like I actually, um, I haven't put it up there, but like even with 
Rocco Landers, we were the first, well, me and my partner were the first person to put Rocco on a 400. It was our 400 he won the championship on. So I had a big part in that. So with him and then with Sean, the first two years, uh, you know, it was major, major swing for me. And I'm still racing, but it was uh, kind of different when you go to the track and now people are asking questions and I love to talk about it, but get sidetracked, you know? And so then that's kind of where I started to cross over and started into the tuning part of it. And then not only that, working with the younger riders that obviously the talent with Sean and Rocco is, is there from birth, but they just need to know how to talk about it. They need to know how to, to bring it out. And uh, me having such a background and such these multiple angles of motorcycling in general, um, it's a good kind of, you know, maybe it's an easier conversation than most. And then, having a little bit of a mechanical background, I can convert all that over. So yeah, it's, it's fun. It's a, for me, it's, a, it's the crazy time though. Like, you know, I go from being in pressure and racing and all of the hype between that and then, you know, building bikes. And now these days I rider comes off the track. I plug into the bike with a computer and I stare at squiggly lines for the next <laughs> six hours until I fall asleep in bed. Like it's just a weird, weird thing. Weird shit, weird sw swing of events. Do you, ever, do you ever go in there and set times that are better than them? I remember Chuck Graves doing the same thing to his riders where, where oh, he yeah. just go no, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm faster than you, but I'll let you ride. All right, it, and it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a ongoing joke. Like, you know, my rider, like with, with a lot of them, we'll have somebody come up that we don't even know walk over our shoulder and they'll, they'll kind of behind the behind their shoulder and say, Hey, don't let your crew chief put a helmet on and go kick your ass. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it's fun. And I, I mean, now I just love the, I love that part of it. I love the training and just being the older statesman, right. You know, like when you're racing, I started way late because you know, real late, real late start to things and kind of couldn't do it until I could kind of do it myself. And uh, so I was always way older than most racers that I was up against. And, you know, and that's always like that unwritten, untalked about number, you know, talk about your age, blah, 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 you know, all this. So my whole career was just kind of like, yeah, they knew that I was a little older, but we just kind of didn't talk about it. And so my whole life, I'm less like, how old are you? Like, I don't know. We did switch the subject. And now <laughs> when I'm working with these kids, you know, and we're out motocrossing or flat tracking or on the road race track. I'm like, yeah, I'm over twice your age and I'm stomping you into the ground. You better step up your game, kid. <laughs> and it's, uh, I use it as a crutch. It's funny. Uh, are you going to go back on a bike uh, in AMA and show them? Like <laughs> yeah. We, there, there, it came down to, and I'm, this is a true story. Like it came down to this close this year. My rider, I worked with Sam Lockoff this year and he got injured. And uh, I actually packed my leathers and helmet up and was heading to the track. And it was uh, it was just logistically not to have a crew chief there. It was too much of a headache, but it like seriously got to where it was the within the last couple hours. But yeah, that probably would have I probably would have gone out there and embarrassed myself and gone <laughs> fast for three laps and come out with my tongue hanging out or something. I don't think so. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> so what's the uh, biggest challenge being a crew chief? Biggest challenge 100% is a communication and just being able to come off and everybody, everybody has a, has a different expression on their feeling. You know, we go into a turn, the bike is doing X from the front end. Well, how you explain that and how 
your brother, the dog, the guy on the sidewalk explains it. Everybody's different. It's taking that yeah. explanation and being able to convert that into an actual mechanical happening. What's going on with suspension, the geometry, possibly the electronics. And, uh, you know, half the time these guys come off the track speaking Chinese, which I don't understand. And then I convert it over to something that makes sense. And I think that's my little uh, specialty in this department, maybe. I'm able to kind of relate. Like this, I actually understand what that means in a turn or, you know, whatever their gesture may be. And uh, that I think is is a big part in the crew chief part of it. You know, I'm for sure I'm not the smartest suspension guy. I'm not the smartest data guy. I'm, you know, not the smartest strategist. But I can relate what they're feeling to compile all that and and have a direction forward. And I think that's that's where I uh, where where I shine over over the rest of the people. Do you also have that that uh, advantage of? giving them advice if the bike is acting a certain way and you're not sure how to solve it with setup you can just tell them how to solve it with their writing style right yeah no there's a big portion of that too and i'm lucky to where you know i've I've definitely got to work with quite a few people but i think when somebody else in a different maybe background might suggest going into the turn dropping a shoulder doing whatever it needs to happen probably not taken with the same weight. So I'm lucky with that. You know, like I, the, uh, actually the very first year we started the 400 project with the ninjas, I actually had Ashton Yates riding my bike. And as soon as we put him on, God, he went out in Laguna, obliterated the track record. We won the next race. And obviously he's got a substantial dad standing right next to him. But, uh, you know, with Aaron, that guy's got an opinion on everything and, and it holds weight, right? Well, um, with me, we were able to, you know, come to a, a common ground because, you know, I had been there, done that. He's been there, done that. So, yeah, I could definitely, uh, with other crew chiefs, it it would definitely be difficult in a situation, especially like that, with a dad like that. Also, you got to explain to him, you know, today's bikes are not yesterday's bikes. I remember Aaron Yates just being wild on the bike. Why? Right? When he, he went one direction, the bike went another direction, he would just put it back where they wanted to and uh no electronics no nothing so so now it's you know i guess i guess when you explain to him that it's it's an electronics game now where you can't do what he did on a bike and get away with it i guess he listens to you more than he listens to other people that don't have that experience yeah well there there's that view which is 100 true but then there's the flip side where a lot of these kids you know like when i first started dealing with Rocco, uh, he would have been 13. When I first started dealing with Sean, he would have been 15. And these kids are coming from, obviously, the mini bikes that don't have electronics, but their first introduction onto a full-size bike has, a, you know, usually has a quite a bit of electronics. So you'll come across these questions like, oh, well, the electronics don't work. And then I go right back into in my day, we didn't have a damn shifter. We didn't have a damn TC. You just, here was your TC and here was your shifter, you know, and like, you really need to connect that. And, uh, and I am all for the electronics, but at the end of the day, you know, I think one of the things that benefited me so much, I would go to these track days and be lucky enough for people to allow me to ride their bike. And I would just seriously go down the line from, you know, a very expensive super bike down to the 
biggest piece of crap with crappy tires and then get a taste for all that stuff, you know, and you'd come back with like, oh man, that, that, you know, bike that's 10 years old does this particular thing in the turn so much better than the other turn, especially that bike with the $30,000 fork. So how do you feel about that? You know, but it, it breeds all these, these feelings, you know, and this, this connections where, yeah, now I'm able to share it with these little snotty nose brats. <laughs> Man, we didn't we didn't have even have slipper clutches. We were our own slipper clutch, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you watch just, those two fingers. You just keep let them on go. The yeah. I mean, these are habits you have to break when you leave the pits now, and you don't ever touch a clutch anymore. That's just weird. I'm, I'm looking forward to a, a motorcycle with with a blipper, right? I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to shift down without blipping. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's funny now that I I have I have one guy that I coach specifically, an older gentleman that. uh has been around way before that goes pretty damn fast now, you know, and every once in a while there could be electronic glitch or something like that. He'll come in and oh, the blipper's not working or it's not accurate. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. guy. <laughs> like you come from that point. Don't give me that. Go out and ride the motorcycle. It's still got two wheels. It's got a throttle. It's got brakes. If those are working, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> so your chief trait is diplomacy really in this. <laughs> yeah. So I uh what like I remember one of the early days when I got a, a a good bike um the guy who built it was so how is the bike and I'm like fine like how does it feel in the turns I'm like okay <laughs> and you know they're trying to solicit feedback right and I have no clue what I'm talking about right now now looking back maybe five years I go like yeah maybe it was a little too stiff because it was set up for a super sport champ and you know, I was running two and a half minutes track uh, lap times. Uh, is there a way to teach riders? Uh, well, at, at the professional level, would be would be fascinating. But like even amateurs, how to give better feedback? Yeah, hundred percent. And I've I've specifically gone out on certain track days and done things to the bike and told them, you know, after then you come back. So basically, we'll go out and the first step is the hardest step. We're all testosterone-driven motorcycle riders, right? First step is to go out there and swallow your ego. You're going to go a little slower, but you're going to turn your recorder on. And there's stuff like that to where there's people that obviously can do it quite well, and there's people that just struggle with the basics. So we'll go out, and I'll specifically change something that's related to whatever we're talking about, how it turns in, the way it goes over a bump, whatever it may be, and then make a massive change to the bike, have them ride it, and then we'll come back and talk about it. And not that that's going to produce a lap time that day. That's not the, that's not the target. That's not the objective. The objective is, is to connect what that tingly feel in your pinky finger might've been to that feeling that you felt from the motorcycle. Oh, well, this relates. And you take that and move it on, you know, in the next time, but it's really hard on everybody because they always have a different recording system, right? Like everybody can take so much in and sometimes that caps at just a couple seconds or maybe a couple turns. Sometimes it, you know, the other riders that could cap at the whole 20 minutes. So it's finding what your ability level is just like riding the motorcycle. What's your ability to level to remember? Right. Yeah. I noticed a big difference. Like I've done coaching before and I've done the usual you know, pay a guy 40 bucks to set up your suspension. And I, I rarely got anything out of that suspension discussion because you come in and you say, well, the bike doesn't turn. 
and they don't know if it's you or the bike or whatever it is that you are doing. And so you coach like at fast track and 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 plenty. And I don't think there's a way around. You got to know what the rider is doing, and then blame the bike if, if the bike setup has oh, anything right. to do with it. Before you can actually say, well, you need two clicks of compression. Well, sure, because I told you the bike doesn't turn, and you don't know how yeah. I'm riding, and now you know it. Clicks of compression like that does not sound right to me. It's it's not it's an incomplete. Sentence. Yeah, and that's where my benefit comes in, especially places like Fast Track, where I'm out on the track with them in those Fast Track academies and things like that, where I'm out visually seeing what they're doing. Okay, well, it doesn't turn, doesn't turn and turn four because you did everything wrong in turn two. It has nothing to do with any compression clicks, blah 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 blah, and so. You know, another advantage of mine is is being able to, to visually see that and then relate it to like, okay, well, let's fix the body position. Let's fix your turn in point. And then we can start talking about this valve stack, which isn't going to do anything for your lap time. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a famous spot, was it 10, 10 11, that chicane and fast track where yeah. uh, there's bumps. And I was complaining, I think, to Imad or, 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 um, May have been Ulrich, I can't remember. I'm like, it's so bumpy over there. And, you know, the bike gets all unstable. And they're like, you know, we need to change the suspension, right? That was my first blame the bike thing. And they go, well, what are you doing there? I'm like, well, you know, it's, it's so unstable that I roll off. And they're like, well, you're doing exactly the opposite of what you need to do. Get on the gas, the bike is lighter, and you'll sail over these bumps. Lo and behold, I just changed that thing, and the bike suspension was Thanks. perfect. It was the rider that was... Yeah. the best now and it's it's hearing those cues like that and <clears throat> and knowing the track specific you know um where not to beat on some of these suspension guys out there but not a whole lot of them ride and not a whole lot of them ride a lot of the tracks to where there's the little track specific bumps like there at fast track you know all the tracks we go to you know across the country will have a G out here, a seam that will upset the bike. And I don't give a crap what you're doing, putting tires, putting suspension, you're not going to fix it. It's a physical thing that you have to manipulate. And that's your, you hit it right on the head with that. So there's, there's so many adjustments, but at the end of the day, the most adjustment that can be made is between the handlebars and seat hands down. Yeah, right here. Right, sure. For sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Take a anybody's gone over and either raced or just driven around TT course. The manipulation you have to do to the motorcycle there, it's just it's intense. You know, the things that you have to compensate for that will never ever be fixed with a different compression stack, a different compound tire, or you know, chassis geometry, whatever. You'll never ever fix it. And that's what makes that place so special. And then most of those street races, that's what makes it so special because you are you are so dynamic on the motorcycle. And, and you know what? The, the best measurement is is the press launches, right? You see world champions going on a standard bike and they're like within three seconds of, you know, a motorcycle that, that you know, you put 200 grand into. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's how fast those those machines can go right out of the showroom. And if, if you're going less than that, it's it's not the bike, it's you. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I mean, 100%. I can... I can still to this day remember my outlap at TT and still still makes me shake my head to this day. You know, I had when I knew I was going over, I had got the video game. I knew, you know, 
eight months in advance. I played that game six months. I played it every single day for an hour. I'd come home from what I was doing and play the game, play the game, play the game. So I knew, you know, I'm going to go left. I'm going to go right. I had it pretty memorized down the direction of the track. And I go over there and, you know, the hype and all this and the show and all that. It's really cool. And we line up for our siding lap, the first, you know, newcomer's lap. And you're in a group of about four or five, you know, and here I am, this macho professional racer. And the marshal's going to escort, escort us around for the first lap. This guy pulls up on a Honda 954 with Kevlar leathers and his fucking lunch strapped to the back seat. And I'm like, what in the hell is this guy going to show me? Like, get the hell out of my way. Like, there's no way that this, I'm, this is a waste of my time. And I'm kind of like looking around at my guys. I'm like, what's this guy doing? And we take off and this guy disappears. And I almost shit myself for the first mile. I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, you know, just like you say, this guy's on a road bike with his lunch strapped to the back, just waving goodbye to Mr. Testosterone-driven, you know, professional racer that I think I am. I'm not shit compared to this guy. And, uh, you know, it was just crazy. And that's, that's it in a nutshell. Like, you could have the guy doing the correct input yeah. and make up so much more for the motorcycle than you'd think. Let's let's shift gears now uh, into sixth gear and talk about uh, 210 miles an hour on a Kawasaki H2R. <laughs> how does how does how does that feel? We talked to Nick Einach when he used to do those uh, those shootouts. Super bikes from hell. Yeah, but but you were on a stalker. Yeah, yeah, and we had, not only that, it was a pre-production bike. <laughs> God, I got a lot of shit for that for that post. I wasn't supposed to post that, but. Uh, yeah, it was funny. I uh, like I said, I did a lot of work with Kawasaki, and especially on the on the uh, commercial side of things, to where I did all the commercials for ZX10, and that H2 was a special project. And obviously, when it came out, it was super hush hushed. Where man, it was it was in it was in the headquarters of Kawasaki in the most remote back janitor's quarter room that I've ever seen. I mean, it just was amazing. We walk in and see this like spaceship sitting there talk about it and then we ended up flying out to um uh to new mexico at uh the it's uh what spacex and richard branton's uh um facility out there and it's like a, it's a three and a half mile landing strip basically mm -hmm. and so went out there and you know we're doing photo shoots and this and that and riding this thing and you know they're usually fairly loose when it's just one bike and one rider so then i asked the one of the head guy, the head Kawasaki guy there, like, Hey, you know, I gotta go, I gotta go, uh, uh, switch a helmet. They want to, they want a wardrobe change, you know, I'm going to go back or do you want to go and get, Oh no, you can go back. And I'm like, all right, you know, this thing's all good. Right. But I kind of said like, you know, meaning like it's a, it's a production motorcycle. Right. And he goes, yeah, pretty much. So I took off down that <laughs> runway and again, three and a half miles and I take off and and again, I've got my reservations because I've been around a little bit. And this motorcycle's got these big stupid wings hanging off of it. And the tail section looks like some cone off the back of a Cessna. And I'm like, this is a bunch of bullshit. So I take off in this thing and I start smashing the gears. And I'm like, all right, you know, it's pretty damn fast. But all right, let's see what it's got. And that thing zips up to, you know, probably 180 indicated pretty quick. I'm thinking to myself, all right, you know, this is where bikes, you know, and like real, real speed, 180 on a bike is is pretty damn fast. You know, we barely do that at Daytona. And uh, 
all of a sudden, like right around 180, this you could feel this bike start to go click, 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 like getting sucked down to the ground. And I mean, 190 comes by, and I'm like, dude, it's really stable. 200 comes by, again, this is indicated, and I'm not exaggerating it. At at 190, you could seriously take your hand off and drink something. Like it was so stable. And I'm watching this little speedometer keep going, burying past 200, and I'm like, this is crazy. And then I I got this little ring in my head, like shit this production bike and i they didn't even tell me i could ring the thing out so i backed the thing off but yeah it's uh that bike's no joke it is no joke it <laughs> the whole fact that they give that to the general public with a license is just insanity <laughs> absolutely crazy yeah somebody rode it around uh fontana right who was it that uh Elias? went out was it tony i think so Yeah, I've rode yeah. one around Fontana. They actually had me take uh they actually had me the year it came out, I would do the uh kind of the introduction laps to I did one at MotoGP, I did two at Moto America. Um but I'll never forget. I did the one for MotoGP at Laguna Seca and uh you know, big deal, here comes this H2 and I've ridden, you know, quite a few bikes around Laguna Seca and I've hands down never been that fucking scared in my life. Like <laughs> I'm shutting off, you know, way 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 before my braking markers and uh that's another problem with the thing is uh it has the R comes with these Bridgestone slicks. Man, eh, not too bad. And we're coming around over one, two, three, four, and from four to five. I don't think this thing ever quit spinning to where I only did, I think a total of five laps and there was five marks from four all the way past the bridge. And by the time it came in, the tire was wasted, you know, and obviously kind of like, kind of like you suggested about Fontana, I'm scared of this bike. So my line is completely wrong. So I'm whacking the throttle with way too much horsepower at the wrong trajectory and spinning this tire all the way down. But it's just one of those bikes that like, Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the best handling bike, but if I had a ton of money and wanted a whole fleet of bikes and something to scare the shit out of me, I totally have one. <laughs> you, you know, BMW just launched their S1000RR yesterday, I think, and and I guess one of the new features is drift control. So if if you do that, the bike's actually going to save you. And I guess really? they, they do it with like a, a sensor of the bike angle versus the rear wheel versus uh, the angle of the steering. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, come on, man, it's too much electronics. Just let me have some fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's crazy. Leave it, leave it to the Germans to come up with that option. That's, that's awesome. I know, right? get that one. I, I just hope that. It's very they... cool because you can experiment, you know, for, for people who'd be scared of getting the bike to slide, knowing there's a safety net. I think that's yeah. If you know how to do it, good for you. If you don't, that's a good way to invite you to that's a, it's, start trying. Yeah, definitely good. But uh, sorry, but my suggestion would still go buy yourself a five thousand dollar dirt track bike and figure it out there. Because when you chuck that thing or fall down and slide, you get up, you laugh it, <laughs> laugh it off. Not a problem. I, I just I just hope they remember to uh, drill enough holes in the engine for oil this time around. <laughs> I didn't say anything. Uh, let's go back to Isle of Man. Uh, so you prepared uh, by uh, playing a video game. Is that all you did? What did you do uh, nutrition-wise? Um, 
uh, training wise? How did you prepare the bike? Uh, what what did, what kind of base setup did you go with uh, before you went in there? And how did you change the setup once you started riding there? Yeah, um, that was the thing. I as far as the machinery goes, I actually rode. I flew over direct and and uh, rode for a Manx base team that had time there, and it was a fairly standard gist XR one thousand. Um, the, the, best over bi- the, the best bike around, right? Yeah, I mean, Swiss Army knife. <laughs> uh, and as far as the settings and stuff go, we barely changed it. Well, we did a couple clicks here, maybe changed a fork spring and a couple things just because I'm you know, fairly sensitive, but it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. And uh, fairly standard bike because, again, you're so dynamic about it. And there was so much more for me to benefit of playing that game, which I guarantee saved my life. Like it's... It's everybody that goes over. I pound it into their head. You better play. You better play. You better play. Um, now, that which, was one thing. That, which game was it? Wasn't uh, Grand Theft Auto, right? Where you stop in the middle of the race and you shoot some hookers? Is that? <laughs> yeah. Is that no, what it was? No, th- this <laughs> one you you go into the field and run over goats, but it's oh. kind of similar. Okay. No, it was uh, it was Suzuki Superbikes TT, okay. and then I think they rebranded it since then. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that the game is a uh, hands down a lifesaver. But uh, really, with that place. It's funny. I've been riding again. My mo- my background is all motocross, and you know it's it's quite physical. And I ride at a at a decent level to where it takes you know a good a good uh, cardio. And I don't do a whole lot of a lot of other things, especially then. So you know, just watch what I eat a little bit. Ride a motocross bike, and I was gonna be fine. I get there, and I remember taking that first week, and you know, being respectable in pace and this and that. And then I know you know I knew quite a few of the guys. You know, even like McGinnis and all the big head honchos there from, from Macau. And uh, I, I'll never forget Finnegan. One of the guys is not with us anymore, but a proper bad dude there um, comes to me. We're just right before we're ready to go into the end of park for you know, I'm going to go take my last little whisk and we're sitting in the bathroom. He looks over, he goes, you ready for this? Yeah. yeah. He's like, mate, pace yourself because it's quite physical and this and that. And he kind of pounded into my head and I kind of got like intimidated because I didn't know, you know, I've been riding these one lap deals and I was like, shit, you know, okay, you know, I'm going to take it. This guy's been there, done that quite a few times. I'm going to take his advice like the guy, he knows what he's talking about. So I actually took my first raise kind of toned down and I was so pissed about it because it's not that physical or it wasn't that physical to me. And then I get up, you know, after the end of the race and I'm looking at these, you know, 220 to 240 pound beer drinking cigarette smoking Irish guy sweating their ass off. And I'm over there going like, you guys are a bunch of wusses. Like it was not that big a deal, but uh, yeah, it, uh, I think, I think the mental thing for me, like it's, that's where it's at. You know, I would get in there and right before I'm ready to go out, iPods in, I'm listening to something mellow, like Sade or just something to get my mind focused for nice, you know, nice, calm focus. And that's really where it's at, you know. That game and focus, shit, that's no problem. The rest of it's freaking. The rest of that's easy. Did Did you change your uh, routines at the gym? I know you just came back from the gym. Yeah, yeah, no, I especially those times. I would, I was quite lighter and uh, not carried so much muscle because that stuff just gets in the way. <laughs> so quite lighter. Uh, nutrition definitely was a was a factor there. Just you know, stand keeping the weight off, but. That's another thing. When you go to places like TT, Isle of Man, like 
no offense to the people over there, but God, the food sucks over there. So you don't <laughs> want to eat anything. And now you end up being quite light the whole time. You, you, you don't want a shepherd pie or whatever, whatever uh, they ate uh, there. Uh, whatever else. I mean, there no warm, warm, warm Guinness beer, warm Guinness beer. <laughs> Everything's got about four pounds of mayonnaise on it. Like I'm not into it. I seriously, I probably never ate at McDonald's so much in my life that week. You know, just like that was the one you knew that you were, what you were getting was going to be what you ordered. <laughs> just give me a number one. I don't want anything, you know, yeah, too complicated. <laughs> Yeah. So f fitness and riding. I mean, you you are the guru. I would think from from all the coaches I know, the the, the one who's most tripped and and trains the most, uh, not on a bike. Uh, what's the role of fitness in your mind? And I mean, really, how fit do you have to be to be good? That's, uh, yeah, really that's it. It's different for everybody, right? And I think the it's shifted so much now that I'm not racing full time. It's one of those things where I think I'm I'm supplementing something I'm missing from racing with going to the gym more. So it's one of those things that just kind of like you shift, you shift in life. You know, obviously I ride quite a bit, but I don't have to be fit for a two hour race. And, you know, back in the day and, and still to this day, what am I saying back in the day, still to this day, me and Josh Hayes argue about this all the time. And especially when both of us are racing full time and, you know, he's, he's local here. So we train quite a bit on motocross and stuff. We always get in the argument. Even when I was racing full time, I still would have a fairly decent gym routine. And my kind of outline was like, Hey, all of our races, depending, you know, the specific ones, but all of our races are about an hour, right? You should be able to bench press your motorcycle for an hour. That's all you need. You know, other than that, he's out there going on these bicycle rides for five, six hours, you know, like all of this cardio that's like next level. We go back and forth on that all the time to where like you should physically be able to manipulate your motorcycle to the 10th power. You know, like at, at TT, going back to that, that place is so physical. I came in after one lap. Uh, through um, one of the very, very fast sections that has a couple of bends in it. And I ended up bending, I have stock handlebars, I ended up bending one of the handlebars in just from trying to change direction. And I think you should have that harness, that power to manipulate that bike that's trying to manipulate you, as opposed to being able to ride that thing for 20 hours, like Josh's you know, concept is. Obviously, Hard to argue with a guy that's got, you know, five, you know, what, six championships, four, you know, superbike championships, whatever he's racked up. I, you know, it's hard to argue with a guy that's been there and has uh, has results like that. But I think every everybody's uh, it works different for everybody, though. Well, for the next four to six weeks, you're faster than him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Take, take it now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's got to be more than that. Yeah, if we go to the motocross <laughs> track, it's still better. It's still more than that. <laughs> God, that, that talk about a fucking tough dude. You should see, like, he showed me the x-rays the next day as he's cruising around the pits laughing about it. And, I mean, it's no joke. His leg is proper busted. It's proper busted. And he's still cruising around talking to people, giving them advice about this and that. And I'm like, yeah, Josh is like, uh, that's uh, that's definitely one of my guys. That's a bad dude no matter what position he's in. How how would next, you – yeah. yeah. How would you, how do you compare um... – Macau setup to the TT setup? Uh, quite different. Macau, even though it's still a street race and 
again, not trying to offend anybody, but in China where let's just say the attention to detail is not very high. <laughs> uh, you know, you got buses, you got cars, you got taxis. It's a, it's, you know, it's basically Vegas. I mean, it's, it's non-go traffic. It's stop and go traffic all day long. Without the crime. Yeah. 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 Well, <laughs> it's organized there. <laughs> very clear. Hey, it, very it, organized. It used to be organized here too. And there was no, you know, street crime. Now, now that everybody's gone and the corporations run it, all the crimes in the street. I live in Vegas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So um, the grip level in Macau is extremely high. Like it's, it's crazy how high it is. So your setting is more real close to a, a short circuit setting. Uh, some minor tweaks, a couple, you know, maybe just a, a fraction softer where, to be honest, TT, I don't think anybody has a proper setting. If I was going to, if I was visualize a proper setting for TT, it would be something off a trophy truck from Baja. And that might work the best, you know, like, and I, it, it, it sounds funny, but I have legitimately started thinking about how to have bypass shocks and long travel suspension because there's places at TT. I mean, there's a, there's a section of, of road called uh, Ginger Hall to where it's not very turny. It's got a couple little bins in it, but it's bumpy as hell, you know, and again, motocross backgrounds. So I love a rough road. That's, that's my specialty. And I remember going through there and being on the gas and just trying to hold this thing straight. And guy went by me grabbing gears, just flew right by me. And I'm like, this is a fucking straightaway. Like how in the hell, like anybody at any level can hold a motorcycle open down a straightaway. And I'm fighting this thing to the last 10th power. And so, yeah, setting is one thing, but uh, riding it in a position to handle those settings is another. So, yeah, you build another thing you build for TT is the bike has to be way, way more robust because you've got to ride around for two hours, jumping, bottoming this thing out. Like, you know, I remember the first time I went over, I'm sitting there looking at like little things like muffler hangers. And I'm like, that bike has a stock muffler hanger. Like, what are they cheap? Do they not know? You could drop so much weight with that. And then you'll the next guy, you look over and there's a pipe hanging off this motorcycle right next to it because this pipe hanger broke, right? And it's so there's there's when you say setup, it's it's massively different, you know, steering stops at TT, the bikes at TT, the handlebars barely move just a couple degrees because the thing's always getting in a tank slap because of the surface. So they'll build these giant stops off the bike so they don't allow to get in such a tank slap um, kind of sucks for pictures because you can't back the thing in as much. But the setup is, yeah, it's quite different to where Macau is is for sure a uh of short circuit setting where tt would be more like your street surface pike's peak would be definitely like your street surface so you're pretty much locked to steer the steering damper all the way to you know 21 <laughs> yeah <laughs> which yeah you actually do which i'm a huge huge i'm so anti-steering dampers that guarantees that your suspension is wrong and i would i would have nothing more than two steering dampers on my bike at tt probably i i you know what when i go to the back straight in fontana i gotta have it because as soon as you hit that bump of the you know the oval it yeah. just the bike just goes all over so i gotta have those things just for that corner well, see, there you go. There's there's your new supplement. You go to the gym, a <laughs> little bit more string training, hold those handlebars tight. Okay, all right. I'll I'll, I'll take it as a non-compliment, which is, you know, 
I go to the gym. Yeah, almost. speaking of which, so so for someone like Gal, who's like, you know, 30 pounds overweight, hasn't been on a bike in a while, kind of aging it, it's guy. All, uh, that, that 30, you know that 30 pounds is all bulls, buddy. <laughs> what's, a, what's a good training regimen? I mean, you know, he's, he's not looking to uh, break track records because, you know, he can't. And, and he's riding a Suzuki anyway, so that's out of the question. You see, the, you see those but, guns, uh, man? <laughs> oh, look at that. We're good. <laughs> All getting there's excited. Something, he, he there's is, something uh, in the water in Vegas. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they put vodka in the water. That's what. There they you put. go. Well, <laughs> works for me too. Yeah, he's in way better shape than he looks just from you know the the, the head up. Look, look, look when but I when I raced when, when I raced WSMC, yeah. I went down to one seventy, and he still lapped me. So it's it's not about the weight. The weight yeah. does yeah. help, though. But what, uh, what's a good? Uh, what's a good like exercising routine what are like if, if you were to do four things at the gym or at home as a as a rider what do you think those are well a lot of it would be core a lot of core stability um i don't do a whole lot because i specifically focus on individual muscles so it kind of just comes with the territory but if i wasn't if i didn't have a proper set routine i would definitely say core being able to be stable on your motorcycle when you're hanging off and dealing with those G-forces is huge. I mean, that's the biggest complaint I hear about a lot of people. Um, and mm. I don't want to give Hayes any credit, but definitely leg strength is superior to upper body strength. The more you can take the weight from your upper body and the inputs from your upper body disturbing the handlebars, the bike handles way better. So when you're supported by your legs, it makes the bike do what the bike was designed to do. And then, you know, and then it's only common sense. You look down at your body and, you know, your biggest muscle group is by far your leg. And so core stability, you know, squats, a, you know, hamstring routine, hip things abductors, like that. Hip abductors. That you would build that. Hip abductors, you do those? Yeah, hip abductors. Um, the, it's it's not that you have to have strength with hip, adductor, hip, hip abductors, but the flexibility is huge. And that's where a lot of people come sh fall short of. And, you know, for sure, I have to pay attention to that because my flexibility is horrible. But the abductors, I actually use that thing for, for stretching almost more than anything. But, yeah, lower leg strength, uh, the core, and then um, a good lat and, uh, you know, a back muscle uh more rounded, you know, for anything, but those, those three would be the categories that are necessary, but that's it with a motorcycle. You're so dynamic that you have to be a little bit involved in all the muscle groups, you know, and that's where if anybody has any background in, you know, the motocross, that's why I train motocross so much because it just hits every single thing. And not only you're having fun doing it, it's exercising all of those muscles. And you know, a lot of it in a fast twitch way where at the gym you can exercise that, but getting your fast twitch really to work correctly in the gym is kind of difficult. Yeah. You, you load the weights and, and you just, you know, bench press it. And, yeah. 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 So you end up filling, you end up filling muscle full of blood more than anything, which is not really what you want on the motorcycle. So you, it's hard to find that balance. And again, everybody's different. Yeah, for, for me, it's the flexibility that goes first every time I put too much muscle on. And 
and the shoulders. So it's it's tough for me to go, you know, left to right, left to right because the shoulders are so, you know, big and and yeah, not flexible. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Aldrich wasn't way off. But I remember when I did the academy. Before he said hello to me, he's like, uh, he looks at me and he goes, okay, every day I want to see 100 push-up, 100, uh, what is it, 100 crunches, 100 squats, and plank. And it was like, before you do anything, do those every day. And that's a pretty, yeah, that's, that's like, those are good. Okay. That's a pretty serious routine. Um, first thing I would have done is picked up a mirror and asked if he's ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I, oh. So that was a surprise because remember at the end of that academy we had the uh, the bicycle race yeah, yeah yeah and I'm like and I look I'm looking at him I'm like he's gonna get obliterated he's right damn strong and he gets on that oh he disappeared I mean I think I think we did four or six laps I can't remember what distance yeah. was I think he almost slapped me like I could see him behind me yeah, already yeah, yeah. coming around he was doing like twenty five or twenty seven miles an hour average some ridiculous number. That's why yeah, you gotta, like, I can't believe he's in such good shape. You got to get a stick in there and shove it in the in the wheels. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> or you do like I did and run him off the track. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but that's but that's case in point. That guy and you know I I joke with him. We're obviously fairly close. You know his uh he's got a different uh he's got a different uh perspective now with that body he's got you know especially wearing yellow is not helping but anyways there's there's routines that have to happen for specific people me i'm lucky enough to be a, a shorter you know more athletic build guy to where i don't need so much the endurance well chris's whole life if he was off a bicycle and that's why he's so strong they've kept him on a bicycle because you know that guy quits his routine and he goes up there was a big joke between us when we were racing full-time back in the day. So, you know, obviously professional athlete comes with injuries, right? You know, and you'd crash, get a broken this, or be on the couch for a week. Well, I crash and I'm on the couch for a week. I'd come off and I would lose 10 to 15 pounds every single time. And I'd come off and, you know, the, in the one fifties going, wow, listen, I'm at, I'm at race weight. It's Chris, not so much. It's muscles. Yeah, Chris, Chris on the couch, he gains 15, 20 pounds and he would be pissed about it. You know, and I just rub it in his face. It's really funny. But like, again, everybody's so different. Now, now you uh, you also you also work for Road Racing World, right? And he yeah, his dad owns it. So you guys. Yeah, yeah you man, guys are been cool. with those guys for quite a while doing the magazine stuff and, you know, feedback on how the motorcycle goes around the track. It's pretty fun. And now Chris living in Alabama, I. I tend to take all the West coast stuff that's needed, you know? So yeah, pretty cool. But yeah, without those, uh, you know, Chris is in a different position now, but you know, from those concepts of going over to TT Macau pikes, uh, a lot of that wouldn't have been possible without road racing world. And John, that guy has definitely taken care of me over the years. You know, what's funny back in, I think it was 2012 or 2013. Um, he, there were two magazines that compared the 1000s, right? One of them was Motorcycle USA back in the day with Adam Wahid and all those guys. And then the second was Road Racing World. And I looked I looked up the test that they put out. And then I looked at the test that you guys put out. And I said, oh, let me go with the pros. You know, Road Racing World didn't know what they're talking about versus those, you know, those guys. I don't want to call them amateurs because they made a lot of money back in the day. But 
you guys are obviously just playing around on the internet, right? Um, yeah, and <laughs> it's funny. It's we saw this coming a while back from the Willow days and being connected with the magazine starting then. But guys like Adam <laughs> is actually a super close friend of mine. I've talked to him on the regular. There's a guy that can relate to paper very well. Maybe not so much the mechanical part to writing. And so that's where I've always had the little bridge where like, I'm really good at relating that what's happening from pavement to mechanical to uh, the motorcycle and let those guys put it on paper. But uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, well, the, what, what uh, I'm the saying, editor thing. What I'm that's saying a is, separate race itself. Yeah. What, what I'm saying is guys like that. I mean, he's, he's fast. Don't, don't get me wrong. Really right? fast, Actually. Yeah. But I've seen him do 135s at Fontana versus, you know, someone that needs to be the journalist that needs to put in 125s, 124s, right? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but it's still better than all those YouTubers that, you know, would go two minutes and then do like an hour-long video about how the motorcycle feels. Well, I don't care how the motorcycle feels because you're not, you know, you don't, you don't have the measurement to, to tell me how it feels. Right. And then, and then there's like a million views on the video. So what I'm saying is maybe you and road racing world should, you know, should start competing with their, you know, with those YouTubers in their level instead of uh, doing like a two minute video of, Hey, read the magazine. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, there's that too. Um, <clears throat> that, that whole industry has changed so much over the years though. It would be uh, the direction is different, but you know, I think there's a place for some of that stuff too, you know, like uh, your average, let's just, let's be honest, your S1000 that you're going to pull off the showroom, you know, let's just say, luckily by chance, 20, let's just say 20% of those see the track, right? 80% of them are going to Starbucks and going to get stuck in the garage its their whole life. So, okay, there's 20% that are going to go to the track. Well, there's probably out of those 20% that go to the track, there's going to be maybe 10% that have, you know, pretty decent pace. So what I'm relating and what I'm feeling will translate into most of your track day feel, but it doesn't have shit to do with driving the thing to Starbucks. It doesn't have shit to do with going to your, your day glow, you know, meeting uh, bike night type stuff. And so my perspective is way skewed, you know, from what I, I think uh, everybody needs a little piece of it, but yeah, probably uh, another thing in our PC world, a lot of these manufacturers aren't going to want to hear what I have to say from, about some of the product also. So, you know, got to take some with a grain of salt, I guess. So, so I say, I say two things to that. One is uh, the people that are using those bikes to go to star, uh, Starbucks, those are the type of people that always buy what the magazines say is the best, right? doesn't matter if, if the bike at that particular day on those particular tires was 0.02 seconds faster with one tester or another tester at that, you know, at that particular race bike with those particular gearings, right? Yeah. If the magazines yeah. are going to say this is the winner, that's what they're going to buy, right? Definitely, definitely. Uh, second of all, why not give the people quality information of what those bikes that are supposed to, you know, be made for what they're actually doing, right? What, whether that's going to translate to them going on the racetrack and trying, trying to maximize the performance, that's up to them. But 
when when someone goes on YouTube, like like me, for example, when I, I have a Roku TV, right? And I, I put YouTube on and I fall asleep, right? And uh, every time I, I wake up in the middle of the night, you know, there's there's certain YouTubers, I don't want to say or the name. But, what's that? Or from your nap. Oh, from my nap, right? Okay. After I ate, I ate a buffet. <laughs> you know, it's some YouTuber that the algorithm just pushes them up for views. Uh, they're always on and, and I have to go and turn off the TV because I was like, you, you obviously never, you know, never wrote a pace in your life. You don't know what's going on, right? Why are you giving me information? I don't want your information. And I don't want mm-hmm. YouTube to shove that information, you know, in my face. So what I'm yeah, saying no, is... but I think, I think Jeremy's point here is, 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 and I kind of agree with him on that, is you, you, you need both in the world. You need the guy who's going to tell you, Oh, you know, this bike's got a cup holder and, and, and uh, you know, heated grips and the seat is pretty comfortable and the passenger seat is pretty comfortable. And, you know, it, it may be a thousand, it may be high performance, but really 80% of the riders never see the track. So you need that kind of review and you need the review that's going to tell you, yeah, you know, if you want to be the track record, this is not the bike for you. So, um, yeah, but every, it's just everything, everything you just said, everything you just said is logical. I don't know if you guys have peeked outside those doors. Not so much logic going on for the most part, and <laughs> you're totally right. But like in the same respect, that's the same thing. I mean, you think you think the guy at the Ferrari dealership is buying that car because it's the fastest one? Hell no, he's buying because his penis is this big. So there's you know there's that too. So yeah, I I could see both views, you know, for sure, for sure. All, all I'm saying yeah. is start making start making YouTube videos that are a lot, an hour long and tell the truth of what's going <laughs> yeah. on out there. That's that's all I'm saying. Just start competing in the marketplace. That's all. Yeah, that's that's, that's so speaking, definitely uh, definitely speaking neat. Speaking of bike reviews, what's your you know kind of favorite bikes you've tested in the last, uh, or maybe you know some some that have things you liked more and some other things that you like let, let me bikes. rephrase that let me rephrase that question why do you think the gsxr 1000 is the best bike ever made and why do you think and why do you think uh, the gsxr 750 is is the second best bike ever made yeah oh yeah well that's 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 pretty loaded but uh <laughs> uh no, I'd say there's been a bunch of stuff. I mean, there's been a bunch of stuff. I'll tell you one thing that I just rode, and obviously fairly irrelevant, is that new KTM. That thing's pretty uh, damn amazing. Uh, did, are, are you are you a listener to that podcast? Did you, did you listen to our last episode with Imad, and we did an episode about the KTM? No, I didn't see it. Okay, all right. It it's it, it's nobody saw it, by the way. Oh, thanks. Because it's not on YouTube yet, but. <laughs> But it, it is on, you know, every, do you have an iPhone or, or an Android? Yeah. iPhone? iPhone. Oh, so either, either open your, uh, your podcasts app and just search for Edge Grip Podcast or, or put in or search it on Spotify. We're, we're pretty much everywhere. Uh, so you can listen to that. And we just, we got Imad to just talk about the KTM because he's got a KTM and the Bill's got a KTM. So, yeah. So now, so no, now the up, guy, now the guy with the Suzuki hat is going to tell us about the KTM. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's that. That's the thing. Like, uh, I, I think one of the people, one of the things that people maybe uh, hire me for the most is uh, there's not a whole lot of filter in my mouth, and so if the Suzuki's good, or if the Suzuki's bad, I'll tell you, 
if that KTM is good or bad, I'll tell you. But yeah, definitely that thing. I just rode it that last fast track, and it was uh, it was pretty surprising. It was pretty, it was pretty surprising. I uh, definitely, I would like to ride that thing with a little bit more setup and know that it's properly broke in and and see what it's capable of because it's uh, it's pretty impressive. But no, there's all kinds of stuff out there. Kidding Please me? Say more. Please say more. About yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nabil broke it for you. So next next event. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing the old change this weekend. So uh, on the 15th, you're more than welcome. There you go. Yeah, I'm actually going. I'm actually going and grabbing the mods on Monday and going through it for them. We're gonna do a couple things, a little bit of gearing change, some some little bit of geometry and things like that. So yeah, we'll see. But that thing's uh pretty cool and not just that you know like obviously being around you you get interested when you see a new segment like that like you know what the hell is that it's a it's an underpowered overpriced just day glow colored and you're like oh my god you know and then you write it you're like this is what i need this is this is great do you want another s1000 there's a definite place for it but you've kind of seen that and been there done that right and uh, so that KTM is, it's its cool to see stuff like that. And it, it goes back to little things like even the Ninja 400. I, doing all of the Kawasaki commercials back in the day, I did the commercial for the 300. And that thing's a piece of shit. You know, like I remember being next to the uh, different vehicles they use for camera vehicles. And the camera vehicle outrunning the freaking motorcycle. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, my God, this thing's such a turd. So Kawasaki, you know, after that, Kawasaki called me about going and doing some development on the 400. And we we're going to spend two days at Laguna Seca. And right off the bat, I'm like, all right, well, I'll do it. You know, it's it's work. It's a job, whatever. You know, yeah, sure. So I seriously went there going, I'm going to Laguna Seca. I'm going to have restricted noise, which means restricted power and this underpowered piece of crap that's some entry-level piece of junk. And probably leaving there with the most giggles and smiles that I've had in a long time, just because the thing is so good for, for what it's meant to be. You know, it's not a super bike, but what it's meant to be was really fun. And that KTM is that same place. You know, it's it's not as fast as 600, but it feels like, an oversize of volley on steroids, you know, and that just, that made me smile. Like that was really, really, really fun and exciting to ride. So there's those things that, I mean, for me being lucky enough to ride all of this stuff and high level super bikes to whatever in between um, these weird segments that come and kind of catch you by surprise and remind yourself, Hey, started riding motorcycles. Cause I really love these stupid things. And this is a different category. Yeah. At the end of the day, you know, getting on a, thousand cc super bike and going down the straightaway is fun and that sticks in the turn bonus but these other bikes that kind of come from catch off guard those are that's what's really cool now for me didn't, didn't you develop a, a track package for the 400 and then you went and tested it and bun and just won a bunch of races on it just to sell yeah it? we we started we, Orlando, right? yeah that was with that was with rocco but we've done we have a whole um with my partner uh under norton motorsports we have a whole package to where we sell a complete turnkey ready to go track bike and it started off with me having a relationship with kawasaki and we were actually going to go and support these things as far as like a team green motocross 
development program. Well, right around the COVID time and everything coming apart, that ultimately didn't come together. So we ended up buying, building these bikes and developing parts. And, and again, you know, obviously it's a, it's a cheaper bike and it, you know, there's parts on it that need to be switched, but for the most part, you can actually take that thing off the showroom floor, put a different set of brake pads on and beat the crap out of it and make yourself laugh your butt off. So there's, there's just things like that, but that's, that's one to where like you just keep going. You know, I, I built one, uh, a couple months ago for, um, for Dak Shepard and, you know, the motorcycle is whatever it is right now. I don't know, five, six grand, depending on who's marking it up, you know, after his build was done, there's a $30,000, $6,000 motorcycle sitting there, you know, but you kind of think to yourself, you know, what's, what's that worth? But you come off smiling and laughing and, you know, it's definitely worth every penny then. So it's, you know, it's all perspective. Yeah. Yeah. That was my takeaway. My first time on that KTM, which was the only time. Uh, usually I'm a little apprehensive before a track day, you get on these bikes and they're, they're big and heavy and you're going like, well, you know, is it going to outride me? And oh, I got to try to beat my, you know, personal best and I'm going to take some risk here and risk. And I get on this bike and I go a few laps. And I'm like, wow, this is actually fun. We are meant to come here and have fun. Yeah. And it, it just, that was like the main impression leaving and actually did go faster, but it was just the main impression leaving the, 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 the track was like, this thing just makes me want to come back tomorrow and do more of this stuff, irrespective of whether I, I go faster or don't go faster. And I was still breaking in the engine. And it was just like, it made me regret starting the way I did on big bikes, as opposed to like starting my track experience on a 300 or a 400 and just having fun and growing into the bigger bikes over time. But, yeah, goes back to that, that perspective of motorcycle, testosterone, ego, all this other stuff. We think that we had, need these things. And, you know, it's it happens so, so often. And a lot of these, you know, I, I, I'm always trying to talk these people down from the cliff, like, come back to having fun, you know, like, try this. You're not quite ready for that. You can have this later, so on and so forth. But, yeah, these those specific bikes, I mean, they definitely remind you why you first throw a leg over these dumb little machines to start with so much fun yeah you know and then you have suzuki jixer which... <laughs> so so actually the first the first bike i ever took around a racetrack was big willow and it was a 2004 yamaha r1 that i bought a couple months prior so i started on a leader bike at big willow which is pretty much the worst motorcycle you can start on on the worst racetrack you can start on. Yeah, one of the worst places to start riding, for sure. Yeah. And, which, that's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I flew off the track on my second or third lap ever at turn nine. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't fall, and I, I rode back on the front straight. But it was... It was like, yeah, what what do I do now, right? I got all this power, but I have no control over it. And, you know, it took me a while to learn. Uh, and I still, I'm not sure about turn nine. I think I'm going, I need to replace it. <laughs> <laughs> get some coaching with Jeremy. That'll yeah. get you there. Yeah. Well, you used to be able to run off at, at Willow Springs. Not anymore. I think now you run off and you die over there. Yeah, I don't know about if I'd ever want to run off at nine. <clears throat> I ran off on my elbow and helmet and head a couple times in turn nine, but 
Yeah, I think when you run off a of turn nine there, you're you're pretty much signed off. But uh, I mean, I mean, I missed the wall by inches, the pit wall. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nice. How? Yeah, that's a thing. Starting on a place like that, that I mean, that track specifically teaches a lot of bad habits. Being on a big bike, big leader bike, more bad habits. So you know. You welcomed yourself into the bad habit group right off the bat. No, no, no need to waste time. Just go straight for the gusto. That, that's all right. I mean, every every riders meeting where uh, where they go like, hey, if you're if you're on a leader bike and someone on a six hundred is showing you a wheel, let them pass. You're not never going to see them. And I was, you know, getting my head down because that's me. Because I just, <laughs> you know, I'm a cheater. I use the power. <laughs> you know? yeah. Good stuff. So how are the casinos in Macau compared to Vegas? That that's one thing I have such like a bad taste in my mouth of that place. <laughs> Where we first went, like I I think the first year I went was 2003 and it was still extremely extremely it was just gangsters and it was just it was something from from a movie as far as I've never seen anything like that. And like you walk in a casino back then and it was like, seriously, you could cut the smoke. You know, everybody's just chain smoking and like, you know, I'm only five, eight and I'm able to look over everybody's over everybody's head. Like it was just a weird, <laughs> weird scene. And uh, you're, you're big in Japan. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, I'm huge over there. It's funny. You know? But uh, yeah. And then really quick, you know, the next over the next five years all of these Western casinos start coming in and the place lost its whole, its whole vibe. Like it just, it seriously looks like uh it seriously looks like a, I mean, it is, it, it's the Asian Vegas hundred percent, but I mean, it's all Western casinos and stuff. And uh, yeah. just that whole third world walking down a dirty street and, you know, eating off a cart. A lot of that's gone. Well, pretty much all of it's gone. And it's like Van Nuys. <laughs> <laughs> well, they bought, so my friend is actually head of M&A at the MGM. Uh, they bought a bunch of casinos down there. It's all, yeah. you know, MGM and Big Chain. That, that's yeah, where the money for the win comes, I think, right? The win, the win have a casino there, and I, I think that makes them most of the money. Not really yeah, the win, MGM, yeah. Venetian. The Venetians, like the Venetian there, from what I hear, is it dwarfs Vegas. I mean, you walk down the aisle, you walk down the walkways and you're like, what the? there's no way that they can produce enough people. I mean, China will try to produce enough people, but there's no way they can produce enough people to even to fill this thing up. You can seriously drive semi trucks down the walk, the walkways of that place. Like it's enormous. It's crazy. And it's empty. Probably the cost of building over there is, is a little less than the U S yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. So in, in the series of non sequiturs, uh, Sean Dylan Kelly, what's the plan? I mean, he's 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 uh, done his breaking in Moto Two. Now he kind of knows his way around the tracks, I guess. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that. I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen. One day, Sean Dylan Kelly is gonna step out of his trailer with the helmet already on, with the visor already closed, right? And and they're just gonna go out there and gonna set a lap record. Right, and they're going to win the race, and then they're going to go back to the trailer with their helmet still on, right? And it's going to be Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> yeah, I think, I think that'll that would be a that'd be a bit of a stretch. Yeah, the, the stig. <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, with Sean, man, that kid is uh, he's amazingly sturdy mentally, and he knows he's got a lot to learn. And this this year is is took is put a beating on him. It's definitely put a beating on him going from setting all the records we did last year. And and you know have an amazing year and amazing communication. Uh, it's it's put a beating on him, but he's got a two year deal. The kid's not he's not backing down. He's not scared. But that's the crazy thing that when you really look at numbers, it's a crazy thing that most of our motorcycle society and and fans don't see. You know, you know we're looking looking at F. You know, free practice two yesterday or this morning, and you know he's dead last. Um, looks bad, you know, he's had a couple injuries this last couple rounds and some mechanicals, it's really hindered him. But then when you really look at it, you look at what his last place is, it's 1.7 seconds off the fastest guy. At any Moto America race, the pole sitter could be a second faster than the second place guy. Not, we're not talking about, you know, fourth, fifth, tenth, whatever, the whole Moto2 field will fit within two seconds. And, you know, that's ridiculous. So that level is the screws are so tight. And, you know, in in a placing, in a finishing uh, format, it doesn't look too good for him. But when you really look at the numbers and what he's up against and what he's accomplished this year and him and Cam have done, um, it's pretty amazing because, you know, the America's team's a good team, but let's be honest. It's a, you know, it's a midfield team. They got, they got good equipment. They have a good, they have good members there, but they're not the guys. And to finish where they're finishing is, is pretty good. So it's one of those to where back to that ego thing, as long as you can swallow that and focus on the goal here. And that's, I think where me and Sean had the biggest connection working together is I was able to take the pressure off him, quit, Quit looking at everybody looking at you. They think you're the next guy. Stop that. I don't care about that. We're going out and we're going through everybody until there's nobody else there. And that's when you can relax. And that last year, that's exactly what he did. And then so he's got the mentality for it. And so, uh, yeah, I think uh, you'll see a different Sean next year. Yeah, the sign of a champion is just learning. They don't care. I mean, they'll just yeah. learn and improve and just you know, tomorrow is going to be better than it is today. And that's, that's all he needs to do to get ahead. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Well, it's a big change to the whole environment and, and the bikes. And I mean, like, I think it took three years to Joe Roberts to get his first top 10. Yeah. Um, and he changed teams, I think, to get there. So yeah. And he's, and he's definitely, definitely on a good like one. Riding. Definitely on a good one. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's there. I mean, Sean's really good to where he can morph into his environment. So I don't, you know, I think that's lucky to where that's not affecting him. Kind of like, can't say that for Cam. You know, Cam is definitely a NorCal dude that loves his, you know, his surroundings and and, and family and stuff like that. Not that Sean doesn't, but um, it's a big portion of, of what Cam is. And that's, I think, why it was really hard for Cam to, to go any longer than he did. And uh, that's why he's coming back to where Sean – not only is he younger, I mean, he's, he's barely 20, so he's got a while and he can handle that. But 
yeah, taking some more of this uh, this mental punching from the rest of that Moto Two field. I mean, it'll make you a man or it'll break you. Did Did Cam already sign? When I heard something about BMW, Tyler BMW. Is yeah, that, that I sign? mean, I'm, I I would say it's not official, but it's official. How come he's not coming back to Yamaha? It's because they got two bad dudes on Yamaha right now, and one of them. I know has another year on his deal. And the other one obviously is going to get a, an extension because he just won the championship. That's so, I mean, I, I guarantee Yamaha would bring him back with open arms, but uh, yeah, those details, it's just, you know, the, uh, the music stopped and there's only so many seats left. I'll, I'll just run a third bike, but that's just me. Yeah. Well, that Tyler's team is, is, uh, has put in some, a pretty impressive first season and there's the financial backings ridiculous, but uh you know, you bring a talent like Cam over and uh, a lot of things could change. So it'll be it'll be interesting to see for sure. Um, you know, and knowing a little bit on how that manufacturer works, you know, that could uh, that could help and it could hurt him depending on how Cam takes it. So, you know, it, it'll be it'll be fun to watch. But I mean, nobody can deny that there's some real deal talent coming back. Yeah. If Petrucci comes in for another season, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be war. No, it would be good. Really good. Yeah. No, a full year with Petrucci. And now that I think he's uh, maybe swallowed a couple things that he, uh, that he was uncomfortable with and it shows and he's, you know, he's racing hard and good. Yeah. Se second season, he's going to be used to all the tracks. Uh, used to home motor Mercury. Information been... with that bike too. I think that's huge. I don't think that's a, I don't think that's an easy bike to, race most of our u.s tracks with um you know it's got a different perspective and its design philosophy is way different so that being said uh now they've got a full year of data of what and what not to do and i think that's going to be you know Petrucci is already a bad dude you know that, that came in with a known but that bike was still an unknown and i think with that out of the equation ugh, these guys are gonna have a tough time with him next year uh, he, he he wrote a bunch of i mean this weekend he's on he's on a MotoGP Suzuki, right? He's on the Suzuki, yeah, yeah. yeah and then the, back to that whole thing about riding different stuff. I mean, that guy's been to car. I mean, he's amazing, you know. And uh, that's why I think he did so well. And you know, maybe some of the prior attempts with these other you know high level guys didn't work out so well. Um, that guy's way more dynamic, and you know, in in different in different categories. Yeah, and he's competitive. I mean, he's got the competitive spirit that comes, sure. you know, comes from Italy. And stuff doesn't go his way. He starts yelling and you know, <laughs> yeah. cursing. And uh, this is how I need it to work because I want to win. Yep, yep. No, gotta gotta have that fire, man. Gotta have it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So now I have a bunch of questions about uh, the Tuono factory that. You uh, prepared for Rennie? Yep. Uh, what exactly did you do to that bike? How did it? How did you make it so fast on the mountain? Um, there's a, there was a lot of things we did, but it's surprising. That's a you know pretty nice bike out of the box. Um, we worked with obviously the uh, the U.S. based Aprilia team here. Uh, when I say team, the, the actual factory. Um, but they don't have a race category. It's basically a bunch of salesmen. So 
I had been, you know, friends with Remy for a while, uh, have some background with him, and he asked me to come on board and have him some background there at uh, at Pikes. So basically, we just went through the bike, made it nice and safe for the mountain. Again, not over the top, proper brakes, proper suspension, nothing too crazy, and um, yeah, and then just went for it. And to be honest, it comes back to that relaying that information back to what that adjustment could be as opposed to, you know, maybe not understanding the surface versus an actual valve stack and a fork or actually power delivery. So uh, I think we have a good connection to where the chassis was uh, set up very well for what he needed. And what's funny, this is, I don't know, maybe should or should not be said, um, but the U.S.-based team, you know, was full behind it, throwing everything they could at it, and still through electronics-wise and uh, engine management, that thing's locked like a vault. You know, I I was able to tune a handful of things to it and, and get it to work, and it worked pretty good, but it was not capable of full unleash. So we started it. We went through the week of practice and uh, did pretty well, and then all of a sudden – Italy noticed that we were knocking on the heels of Ducati and this is no exaggeration we were down on power from Monday to Thursday they flew one of the head technicians over on Thursday he came over with a full ECU we downloaded we talked about what type of TC and and an engine uh, development and and uh, delivery is really what we worked on a ton you know, what I wanted to see. And uh, basically with a ride of a little bit of a keyboard and a plug-in, that thing unleashed itself and was a different motorcycle. And that was a huge, huge part. But I'm telling you, it wasn't until <laughs> we were able to protect this thing and start nipping at Ducati's heels that we got really love from the other side. So it was one of those to where it's like, ah, you silly little Americans and your silly, silly little race. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's got a good little worldview and, we're on it and that's then when we got the help. So it was a, it was kind of a cool triumphant that, you know, that was one of those weekends where it was one of the best weekends and possibly the worst weekends, obviously with losing a close friend. Yeah. Half and half there. Yeah. It's, it's part of the game. What, what do you think yeah. about them canceling the race? Because, because of it, do you think, you think they need to bring it back or, you know, at that living in America, <laughs> It's surprising that we even had that going on. And I had said it since the first day I went there. And just that we were had that happening was was impressive. The people that are handling it, eh, let's just put them in the category of good old boys. They don't kind of see the same thing. Um, but in their defense, they're dealing with insurance and, you know, bad publicity. And I get it. Uh it's the the car thing brings a ton of people there um it is definitely a fascinating race in that perspective um but you would see it you'd go to the fanfares and everybody's you know they look at a couple cars and everybody wants to know about the bikes and that same with macau macau is the same way you know i've got you've got you know f3 and and gt cup and all this other stuff and the biggest draw was always around the bikes so um with pikes taking it away I can't say that I'm not pissed about it because I am. It sucks, but I'm not surprised in the slightest. 
surprised it lasted that long. Yeah, pretty soon we're all going to be riding electric motorcycles. That's it. Got that yeah. 20 miles be, be, between between rolling blackouts, trying yeah, to charge in them. between rolling blackouts, eating some, you know, yeah, fake vegan, meat, vegan fake burger, shake, yeah, you know, and talking about our feelings. So it yeah. should be all good after this. Yeah. Yeah. Get get your crickets ready. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's it's coming. <laughs> it's it's surprising. I mean. I don't think the road race side of things has really got that e-bike down. The motocross bikes are getting pretty decent, though. So yeah, we'll see. It, it's it's a it's a grim future. I mean, one of my future cars is is probably going to be electric, but I will get an electric motorcycle when the last drop of oil comes out of the ground in Saudi Arabia, and, <laughs> and I, I will be the one to bid on it. <laughs> so. They- well, we'll see. I, I'm I'm waiting for that that technology push. I mean, there's there's no way in hell that I'm doing anything anytime soon. But my uh, I'm a huge huge F1 fan, pretty much an F1 nerd, and seeing what they're doing with the hybrids and stuff like that now, ah, uh, it's it's amazing. But then I go like I went to you know I've gone to a couple F1 races and. They're definitely not the same. I mean that that's that's not that not that intense because that sound wise, it's 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 another level. Yeah, you know they're coming to Vegas. Yeah, they're what the one point six engines. What's that? Uh, they're, they're small engines. I mean they're electric assisted, but the 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 gas engine is like a sixteen hundred cc's. Right? Yeah, exactly. With two with two turbos. Yeah. yeah. One driving the one driving electric, one driving the motor. You know, you know, there's only one thing that electric mo- motors are good for, and that that's for those those wheelchairs that go up the stairs for old folks. Yeah. That that's <laughs> that's the only function I think that should be used that. Yeah, and um, a couple of those. Yeah. Which one is the supercar company? Was it Pagani or somebody who just said they they just build their last fully gas car? Everything from now on is going to be hybrid or electric, and it's a big one. It's either the Pagani or or uh, Koenigsegg or or you know it's not Ferrari yeah. obviously, but but I would doubt Koenigsegg, maybe Pagani, but even even down to Ariel Adam now. I mean, Ariel Adam just came out with a with electric with a full electric uh, turbine generating system on one. So I mean. People are getting out of their minds. Yeah, that thing's that thing's amazing. Check yeah. that thing out. But it's a jet it's engine. Car. Yeah, a jet engine that powers an electric the, 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 battery. Yeah. They, they, they say that the, you drive around a full electric, but the jet engine is your generating system for the batteries. <laughs> amazing. What a concept. It's like, come on, man. Just stop right. it. Just stop it. Uh, yeah, it's like the Teslas with the. You, you uh, want to save. Generate, you want to save the environment. You want to save the environment. Stop buying cars. Just fix your old cars. All right. If if you're buying a new <laughs> car, you already messed up the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, or cycle a bit, or ride a motorcycle. You know, they they consume what a tenth of the gas of a big car. Yeah. All right. I think we ran out of questions. Unless there's any more questions. Nothing. I think we are pretty much. You've been very generous with your time, Jeremy. Thank you yeah. so much. 
No sweat. And, and and this is the coolest hat everybody anybody ever wore in, in our podcast. Kind <laughs> of fresh. You just got it last weekend. <laughs> I, I I told him before we started recording, I have a Matt Maladin Suzuki hat that I got from Suzuki Van Ice when I bought my K6. So I still have oh, nice. that somewhere. Yeah. It's 20 years yeah. old. Well, as, as you can guess, uh, Gal bought a Suzuki and, you know, we won't end yeah, up yeah, yeah. Bought a Suzuki. Bought a few Suzukis. One day he'll be invited to when it's, when I, it's finished. I bought a few Aprilias too. So nobody's perfect. No, definitely. <laughs> no, there's, there's good and bad at all that for sure. Yeah. All right, guys, this has been another episode of Edge Grip Podcast. Thank you all for listening uh, with our special guest, Jeremy Toy, uh, which for the next four to six weeks is faster than his neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thank you, guys.